welcome to the Activation Project, where we activate your mind, activate your tribe, and activate the world. My name is Olivia Eden, and I'm here with my co-host, Paloma Cifuentes. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We have a very special guest today. His name is Oliver Kelman. I actually met him in Washington, D.C. while I was there working with a client at a Halloween party. It was a lot of fun, and we had a really good conversation. And I just knew that he had to come on our podcast to tell his story. So a little bit about Oliver. He's the co-founder and co-CEO of Black Rose Global Partners. He's also the chairman of KIMAC, which is a global entertainment company. But he is a man of many, many more trades. He's also been a senior advisor to royal families in the Middle East. He has a background in law. He also served as a chief of staff in Congress and congressional committees, and he's dedicated to philanthropy. He's supported causes like EDM and Fight Night. So we're going to hear his story. We're going to get the details on how he was kidnapped in 2012 in Libya. We're also going to hear about his experience with plant medicine and what that was like and just the different transformations. And of course, as always, we usually start with the transitional dilemma, which has led to transformation. We like to get a little bit of the backstory about childhood and see sort of maybe what has prepared him in his childhood for the challenges that life has faced him, which he has been presented with many of them. So with no further ado, Oliver, we'd like to hear from you. Tell us a little bit about you, where you were born, what your childhood was like. Thanks a lot. And, and thank you for inviting me onto your uh, podcast. I've been looking forward to it. And actually, since we've met, I've seen some of your podcasts. I've really been interested in sort of the work that you've been engaged in and things that you're doing, really um, putting your energy out there, but also bringing in the community of like-minded individuals together. I don't know if there was an exact change per se, but there are many changes that have sort of directed me into different paths. Because as far back as I can remember, I have always followed the energy of the universe. I don't really direct. I don't know which direction or where I'm going to go. I have an idea of what I'd like to do, but I sort of let the universe lead me. And so from a very young age, I grew up in New York. My parents were from the Caribbean. My dad, he's Cuban-Jamaican. He was born in Cuba, grew up in Jamaica, where my grandmother was from. And my mom grew up in St. Vincent and the Grenadine Islands. Her father was from Portugal. And so we had that Caribbean upbringing. And with that, growing up, we heard many, many stories of life in the Caribbean, their engagement with elements of spirits and energies aren't foreign to so it's, it's nothing that in the people look at and say well that's odd it's sort of a matter of fact i remember you know as far back as i could remember when my mom was saying when her dad died that night that they're all sitting in a room and then they could smell the perfume or the cologne that they put on him before they were burying him and his chair rocking chair that was in the room all of a sudden it started rocking back and forth then it stopped after a while and they heard some feet steps go out and then went right through the door. And so I've grown up with all of those stories. And then ultimately at a young age, having my own experiences, you know, seeing things as a child, I think children are more aware of the elements that surround them. So as a child, I always saw energies and spirits as well as interacting with them. And there was many, many occasions like that. 
for example, I think as young as maybe I was 12 or 13 years old, I remember waking up at night and getting up and looking and there was somebody sitting in this chair before me. And at the time, as a young kid, something like that just scares you so much. And I tried to scream. You know, when you're really scared, nothing comes out. I immediately, I put the sheet over my head and I waited. I'm looking through the sheet until the sun is rising. And then when I notice that it's daylight outside, I peek out of my covers and whatever was in the chair is now gone. And I run down and I tell my mother, I wake her up and my dad's still sleeping. He wasn't waking up. But I woke my mother up and I tell her, I'm like, mom, I woke up and there's some woman was sitting in my chair. And she said, well, you know, you need to put something in your chair because if you leave it empty, you're inviting spirits to sit down and sit with you. So that was the interaction I had, you know, as a kid. Then things that I did afterwards, rearranging my room so the spirits wouldn't come back, yet they still came back. And so I've grown up with those. And then as time went on, then of course I wasn't afraid any longer. And then even in my house here, you know, I've had many interactions and engagements. And then I realized that some of those engagements with these spirits, some of them that were reoccurring were my protectors or my protection elements. And then I've had other interactions through different experiences. I know we're going to talk about ayahuasca, but my guides in the ayahuasca and things like that. And then also throughout my whole life, I've always had interactions, engagements, where I don't know whether the spirits are outside spirits or whether they're sports. They're along ancestral lines or whether, in fact, those spirits are actually me. Because when you look at it and when you see things that they're different sides of you, different energies within side of you that speak to you regarding a certain situation that you may be in. And so I have an open mind when it comes to all of this. And those are the interactions that I've grown up with and that I use actually today. Did you ever feel comfortable having like an open dialogue with these spirits? Yes, in fact. I would feel their presence and I would have a conversation and I would think that they were talking to me. I would hear them in my head. One time I actually, outside of the ayahuasca situation, I actually spoke and they spoke back to me, but many times that they're just there, but you can feel and you can sense what it is that they're saying to you. And so there are many different, it depends upon the situation, the time that you're in. I think at sometimes that they want you to know, or for me, my entities want me to actually give them or tell them exactly what it is that I'm asking. Because within us all, we have all the answers. All the answers lies deep within our core, within our soul. Those are the keys, so to say, to the, our Akashic records of the universe. But when you don't get there, I think sometimes they feel that we're going to go ahead and tell you. And that's the case in learning experience that I've had through ayahuasca ceremonies. Mm. Or, for example, when I was when, and we'll talk about that all also, when I was in Libya and I ended up getting kidnapped and in the Gaddafi prison. And so I had daily interactions where I had to do it in a way where people didn't think I was crazy. Who was he talking to? There's nobody there. Or even in the hospital this past year when I was there for several months. And so I've had many, many, many conversations growing up. And I think that they've actually, in the energies and the universes and the experiences that I've had, all prepare me for what will occur in the future. For me, there is no difference in time and space coincide. And I think that your past is the present and the present is the future. And you can go back and forth and time travel based upon how you meditate and how you perceive yourself. It's all within yourself. 
I have never done ayahuasca. I've never done a journey. So can we talk about that for a minute? What is it like? Well, I tell you, first time I did it, I didn't feel anything. And here was the reason why. We were in New York. I was living in New York at the time. And a place I was going to, it fell through. So I offered up my house and only my dad was there. So I offered up my house. We can do it in the downstairs area. And folks came and then... And we were having this wonderful ceremony. I drank the tea and we're waiting and we're waiting. And, you know, there you sort of, you puke everything up because you're getting out all of the energies and you're opening yourself up for the energies to come within yourself and for you to meet who your guides. So we had a shaman actually that came from Peru and a number of people. It was a really great group of people. But then my dad came down. He's like, what's going on? This is, this can't be. So then I had to sort of now become aware with the situation and deal with my dad and then also watch over everybody so that wasn't really a good time for me and it's funny because then the shaman who was there he said to me he goes are you not experiencing anything i said no i well i was i told him but i had to draw myself out of it and then he said there's something special about you oliver for you to be this way and to be strong enough to take yourself out of the situation he goes you must try to do it in a more comfortable situation next time so the next time i did it was when i was i spent several years in Egypt. So the next time I did it was in Egypt. And ayahuasca is called, I forget the plant, but it's the same DMT, but this plant grows on top of Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai, where in biblical times, Moses was supposed to have spoken to the uh, God in the fiery bush. That was about half an hour from this area that I lived. I was living in Cairo, then I moved out to this area, Dahab, which was on the Red Sea, further in the desert, but it was beautiful, right across from Saudi Arabia, an hour's drive to the borders of Jordan and Israel. And so I would go, always go to Mount Sinai, and that whole area is a place full of energy. And some people think that his experience with the fiery bush was due to some sort of a psychedelic. Yeah, I can see why. Because, yeah, this area is only where this DMT plant will grow. And so I was speaking, I was training with some shamans there. And so we would go up and they would get the plants from up there in the mountain on top of Mount Sinai. And to get there, first you're walking about two and a half hours and you have to go up the mountain. It's about another two and a half hour mountain walk or climb, not really a climb because they're rock staircases that are go from this maybe set four or five feet to two feet to three. So it depends on how you're going up. But when you get to the top of the mountain, it's the most beautiful thing. And especially when you're welcoming in the sunrise of the day, it just awakens and then you're looking and then you go and you pick in these little areas that they grow between the rocks, the plants. So we took it there and then we went back to Dahab and then I was able to go ahead and do it. And I always lived in front of the beach. So we were able to do it outside in front of the beach. And the experience was amazing. Unlike certain city areas, as you probably know, when you're in a place that's full of nature where there's no pollution, the stars come out and they shine and they're plentiful. And there's so many and they seem so close as though you can just jump up and grab them. And you see every couple of minutes falling stars, shooting stars. It's just beautiful. So imagine this. Now you're doing this ayahuasca and now you're seeing all sorts of colors. For me, this is always my experience. I'm seeing all these different colors and many, many just lights. And then this voice comes out and it's talking to you. So then you're engaging with conversations. So 
it started downloading information to me. And I know I'm being downloaded information because all of a sudden my eyes are just fluttering. And so then I'm asking questions and it's answering me. And so I'm learning and learning and, and then just taking everything in. And at the end of it, it's just so much peace and you're in this just Zen-like state. So that was wonderful to me. Now I'm going to tell you the second experience to go into further detail. Just a couple questions. Did you have to do the dieta? Like, how does the tradition differ in Egypt? Than it it's the same way. It's the same thing. It's just they call it ayahuasca somewhere else, but then they call it, I forget the plant name, it starts with an A, that they call it in Egypt, but it's the same plant. It's the same DMT experience. And so the shamans have the same, the same type of thing. Yeah. So that you could drink it, you can smoke it. I don't smoke, so I drank it and everything. And so you have this. And then the, if you want, while you're doing this experience, they say, would you like more? If you want to go delve deeper and deeper. So the first time I didn't want to delve deeper. <laughs> you know, I said, this is enough. This is just like too much information. I'm like, what's going on there? <laughs> you know? And so what's interesting, what I wanted to get at with you is the second time I did it, went through the whole experience again. And it's now in the desert that I'm doing it. But what's most interesting is the guide that came to me was the same guy that came to me the first time I did this. And this is two years later. Wow. And he continues from where he left off. So where he left off from two years before, now he continued on two years later. Oh. Amazing. Wow. It was I was awestruck. And then based upon what you're going through. So then there I'm talking and I'm asking questions and I realized something. I said, I am light. And it's amazing. So we go through this whole thing and then I'm just like, I just feel so great that I understand now that I am the light. I am light. And then he comes back and he says, well, I am the light. You're all about ego for you, Oliver Kelman. It's not you. It's not I. So you must say the light. And so I thought about, I'm like, oh, wow, look at me. Here I am. I think I'm becoming enlightened. And here I am already. I'm saying I am like if I'm special, I'm not, you know, I'm special, but I'm not special like this. So then I start saying, okay, I understand the light, the light. And then I feel this just immense, the light, the light, the light. And then he comes back and he says, but now you're personifying what the light is. It's not the light. Light is light. Light is everywhere. Light is, and then he's going through all these different things. So then I understand and I go back and then I just, and then at the end, it was a much longer sentence, so I abbreviated it, but then I go, light, light. And I tell you for the next month or so, I would just think and I would say light, light. And then when I said it and I feel it, and then I saw just light being just coming into my soul, into my body and just pulsating. And you feel this just soaring energy inside of you and amazing. And then you look up and then for a while, then I tried to get up and I couldn't get up. Every time I tried to get up, I, I fell back down. But then I got up and then I walked because we're outside and I walked and the stars are falling and shooting all around you. And they're just like all around you and you just feel and your senses are heightened. And it's just, wow, this is an experience that I've never, ever felt before other than when I am in an ayahuasca ceremony. And the wonderful thing and the most important thing is making sure that those who you do it with, got person who's your shaman, who's your guide, you must specifically become aware and know who you are because all of that and then where you are, those energies will dictate to you 
what type of experience that you will have. Wow. And then I did two other times. And of course, you know, it was similar where the guy that came to me just picked up from where he went left the last time. And each particular time was just an amazing experience where I'm shown so many, many things, you know, and I'm enlightened. And it's like really just accessing, you know, your experiences that you have, but you have forgotten. I believe that we're all, or many of us, some are older souls, some are newer souls. I believe that we've come here for a reason. And this is a teaching planet. So we come here to learn something. And I've always felt that way. And I've had dreams. I've had messages. I've had astral travels. Even as of recently, where I began, I understood what's going on or why I'm having these reoccurring instances through dreamscape or astral travel. And just like with the ayahuasca, it's something that sort of opens the gate for you for understanding not only you, but understanding the history, not only of this world, not only of this universe, but the universes. Absolutely. Yeah. It connects you to source, pure consciousness. Was there a transitional dilemma that led you to wanting to explore ayahuasca or was it out of curiosity? And then also I wanted you to talk about, we had this conversation about your experience and Mm -hmm. I think it was your guide who said something about it being boring, just being like pure consciousness. Oh, you remember this? Yeah, because that was so fascinating. Actually, that was me, I tell you. Okay. Oh, okay, okay, okay. For the experiences, a thought comes to me, and then I just follow that thought, okay? For example, some people ask me, well, Oliver, how did you get to do what you're doing? I said, I don't know. They said, well, didn't you plan it? I said, no, I had, from I was a young age, I said, well, I want to be a lawyer. But then I lost track of that, and then I became a lawyer, but then I didn't like traditional law, so I decided to work for Congress. And then I left and formed my own company. And then I ended up going to Libya and taking part in their revolution. And by happenstats, I ended up in Egypt. And it's interesting because when I was in second grade, as far back as I could remember, I always had an affinity towards Egypt, Egyptology, the pharaohs. And then it was interesting because when I got there shortly after, I realized this and I said, it's unbelievable. I am where I thought I wanted to be. And I am amongst the people and in the land that I thought in a past life that I was a part of and is personal to me. And I've had many experiences there where I I just felt and knew, even within Israel, that I just thought in that part of the world, I have recollections. So during my second ayahuasca experience, I was feeling all this energy, getting downloaded all this information. But then I am in consciousness. Everything is black around me. As I said, my soul goes out. I go through the different planes of existence from this matrix that we live in, this world that we live in, to the next plane, to the next level, to the next level, until I'm in what I think is consciousness, source energy. Everything is calm and you're getting all this energy. It's just flowing through you. And it's like, it's just purifying yourself. And it was beautiful. But then I thought, I'm like, this is great, but it's boring. I mean, here you are, you're in with source that created everything, but this is not what I want. And then I realized something in the Bible, which I think is an extension of actually the truth because everything is, you know, recreated. But in the Bible, in the Quran, within uh, Buddhism, within every religion that's there, you know, they talk about God and how God created all and God created man and things. 
But what I believe is this. So for me, all of those entities that you talk about is source. It's just another way for another name for source. But source created us because source is energy. We are all energy. And that's what connects us to one another. Everything is energy. You cannot create energy, nor can you destroy energy. Energy is just a manifestation of something else. So which is why I always say that, you know, we have always been. We don't die. We may, you know, shed our physical form here, but our energy goes somewhere and where it goes and how it manifests is up to us you know if we learn what we do definitely and so while they're in this source and in the embodiment of source everything is calm but i'm feeling very bored and then it comes to me i said you know god source created us so it can experience the things that we go through so that it can learn from our experiences. And that's why Source loves us. And that's why Source wants us to do many things. I think that just like there's no bad Source energy or good Source energy, energy is what you make of it. There are no good people and there are no bad people either. So the decisions that we make, Source learns from all of it and he wants to know and experience it all. And so the things that I do that interest me, you know, are the things that you may do that interest you, you know, or anybody for that matter. That's why I always believe nobody should be judged because um, whatever they do is their path that they've chosen. And whatever path that they have chosen is an experience, an experience that the source energy, the creation of all things really, you know, holds important. And I think it would be very, very dull just living in an area or a zone or an energy that there's no fluctuation. Everything is just calm. Everything is just subtle. Like a Buddhist Zen garden, you know, just... It's all right to be in that state, but after that state, then what do you do? Right. Your heart, your energy, your soul must pulsate. You must feel, you must drive, you must soar amongst the skies. You know, you should shoot like a star or you can fall like the star. You can roll like the ocean waves. You know, you can ripple like a river. You can do anything for that matter. But all of that are experiences that breaks the monotony. And, you know, and I think I wrote in it that you break the monotony of a decorous age, which is a text from one of my favorite authors, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know? Oh, yeah. So you have to break the monotony of things, you know? You have to have life, live life. You have to have fire. And he's the one who said a, a mind expanded can no longer return to its original dimensions. And that's exactly what we're striving for is to expand our consciousness, expand our awareness. Right. Even within ourselves, like Carl Jung says, you know, our greatest problems in life, we don't solve. We just outgrow them. And that requires a higher state of consciousness. And so plant medicine and these different, all these different experiences, transitional dilemmas that push us towards, you know, transformation and push us up in spiral dynamics to a higher level of consciousness. They all get us to these places of more awareness and understanding, which ultimately should give us more love for ourselves and for others. And that's why, yeah, we can't see people as either good or bad because either of those judgments are going to create a separation between us when we all really are connected. But what you're saying reminded me of 
something Ram Dass talks about. Someone was channeling a spirit to him. And, you know, he was like very focused on his path to divinity. And the spirit was like, well, you're in school. Why don't you try taking the curriculum and having a human right, experience, right. you know, because we're trying so hard to be this, yeah. like, you know, yeah. enlightened, divine. But sometimes you just want to have, do something like carnal and worldly as hell. So there's nothing wrong with that. These are all experiences I believe that we have to do. And, you know, in every experience, that I've had, whether people think it's good or bad, those are all, that's just that all serves me at some point or the other. I learn from them. Definitely. And then the other thing I was going to talk about is when you said, I am the light, I am the light. I had a very similar experience after a strong mushroom download. <laughs> and Ram Das again talks about this, how when you take the ego with you, with these spiritual experiences, then you go into what is called like the messianic experience where you start to feel like, you know, you're the Messiah, you know, and you're like, I'm the chosen one. <laughs> so you yeah. have to be careful where the ego likes to come in and separate you again from everybody. Yes. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. It's so crazy how everybody like in all over the world have these very similar experiences mm-hmm. and get the yeah. very similar messaging, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's a universally agreed upon truth. Yes. Very, very interesting. Any other questions? No, I do want to start to get to where you got kidnapped. The kidnapping. I want to get there too, but I just wanted to ask, so how has it been for you? Because I just think it's incredible, you know, how metaphysical and, you know, spiritual and connected you are to the spiritual world and the fifth dimension and all this stuff. What sign are you, by the way? Huh? What sign? I'm on the cusp, so I'm Libra and Scorpio. Libra and Scorpio. Okay, cool. So, however, you are in D.C., you know, Uh which is seen from most uh, points of view to be the polar opposite. So how have Uh you been able to integrate those two worlds and have you gotten a lot of pushback? Is it something that you've had to hide? How has has that worked? Well, since I've started my own company, I'm really my own person. And I don't think I've ever hit it. I just maybe have been more reserved, but now I'm just, for me, it doesn't matter. In DC, I think of DC like I think of everywhere else here in this world that we live in, this earth. DC is like the matrix, okay? And so I come in here to engage and interact within the matrix. But then when I want to go out, when I need to energize myself, when I need to go ahead and meditate and become one, then I take myself out of the matrix. And it doesn't have to be traveling somewhere physical, which clearly I do as well, but it can be just the state of mind that you want to be in. And so... For example, as you see, I wear a lot of spiritual beads and I have everything has a meaning except for my law school ring, but everything else has a meaning, spiritual meaning. The law school yeah. ring also has a meaning. But <laughs> normal people, that's all they wear. That's you know? true. <laughs> so I love that as well. But everything else is spiritual in nature. Even my tattoos, everything is spiritual. They have a meaning, personal meaning. And so that's what keeps me aligned and people will look at me and everything and I'll engage and I'll talk. And if you know what you're talking about, if you're highly intelligent, if you're connected and you're able to do things, then people will just have to accept you for who you are and what you are. You know? And if they don't, then that's fine too. You know, For me, then that's not meant to be. Because as I said, I always follow the path of the direction of the universe. 
universe. The universe and the energy is my guide, and I'm not going to change for anybody. And so when I have to leak, I'll go back. If I need some alone time, then I'll isolate myself. But at night, normally after work, I'll, I'll meditate. I'll light my incense and candles. I'll play meditational music, you know, so that I can drift off to sleep in, in a form of peace. And then if I would need to concentrate or manifest on some particular thing. And sometimes you forget too. And, you, and the world starts to creep into you. And then so, but then I realize it. And then I stop myself and I said, okay, what are you worrying about? For example, I say everything's going to work out. And if it doesn't, then it's not meant to be anyway. But if you have a manifestation of you put your energy towards it. And if it's meant for you, and if you really want it, then you will make your dream a reality. Yes. And that reminds me also of what Jesus says about being in the world, but not of the world. Of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something that you have to remember. And that's yes. amazing how you're able to, you know, mm-hmm. be in and then connect yourself back to everything. And by the way, there are a lot of people that are powerful within this realm that do and believe the same thing. They just don't say it outright, but they do the same thing. That's why they're a success. It's us. A lot of people are the mainstream people are the masses that get caught up within the emotions of what's going on in the world or politics or what one political party is doing to another political party, not realizing that it's all the same thing. And that those purveyors of these institutions of thought are enticing people to get emotional so that they can feed off of their emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when you're emotionally embattled, you know, on behalf of, you know, like in the old days, it was on behalf of monarchies and kings and queens, and you were out there fighting for them, you know, you're not doing yourself a service. We should understand that each one of us are kings and our own queens in our own right. Each one of us are gods in our own work, right? Each one of us are planets and stars in our own right, you know. Our bodies, within our bodies, you know, if you look at the anatomy of ourselves, if you look within our eyes, you know, it's the same look as though you're looking at the galaxy. When you look in at a cell, it's the same as though you're looking in, in outer space. So each of us are stars within stars, which is within stars, within stars. It's a breakdown of everything, but that's what energy is all about. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you because we need people like you who are willing to be the trailblazers, the, you know, the outside of the box, outside of the matrix that are able to speak their truth candidly yeah. without holding back being honest you know because it's what the thank world you. needs right now it's just it's incredible mm-hmm. thank you for that thanks yeah so let's dive into the kidnapping so it's okay. april 2012 which i feel like was a pretty good year so i'll tell you when the revolution started it was the arab spring revolutions remember when they started in april march actually it was february and march I think uh, somebody in Tunisia, a gentleman in Tunisia, was wanted to announce his opposition towards the oppression by the regime. And so he went into the square and he lit himself on fire, which was his protest. And from there, ignited the revolution in Tunisia. Shortly thereafter, about two weeks later, then the revolution started, rolled into Egypt. And then from there, the revolution ignited into Libya. And then from there, into Syria. And then and you saw 
the, it's like the domino effect falling. And so I happen to have known and worked with on behalf of a gentleman who is a member of the royal family of Libya, King Idris, who was ousted by Gaddafi 40 years before the revolution, which was in 2011. And so he was living in Rome, but spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. And I was working on behalf of his family and here in the United States. And so when the revolution started, he asked me to assist him in putting together some meetings and seeing if he could get some access to members of Congress so they can get some assistance with the rebel group that was fighting against Gaddafi, who was threatening to massacre all of them. And at the time I went and I put together some meetings, dinners with members of Congress that some of them did meetings on our behalf at their homes and did some fundraisers and that sort of thing. And then I decided that, well, let me go over there and see what's going on. I was engaging and talking to people within Libya and they were saying, Oliver, we really need your help if you could come here. So I was planning on going there just for about two weeks. And Prince, who I was working on behalf, he was telling me, don't go, Oliver, don't go. And I said, no, I, I think I must go. And then at that time, I was really getting bored with, you know, just traditional lobbying, which, you know, sitting at my desk doing the regular, you know, Washington, D.C., K Street thing, representing going to meetings on the Hill, going to receptions and white hat black tie affairs. And that was just, it just got really dull for me. You know, traditional interviews on news networks. It was just, I was getting to be a talking head and I just didn't want that anymore. And so I said, I'm going to change the direction of what my company does. And we're not just going to talk to talk, but we're going to actually get into it. We're going to get involved. And so I went there for two weeks. Two weeks turned into seven months. But when I got there, it was, I flew into Egypt and into Cairo and I met some team members of mine. And then we found a fixer who could smuggle us into Libya. And so we got a car that passes on to another car that passes on to another car where we, then we met this fixer in by the Red Sea. And I think it was, it was actually in Dahab, Egypt, funny enough, where I, I've lived for several years. So this was uh, after the plant medicine? After and before the plant medicine. Okay. okay. And so I went there and so we got smuggled in. I remember finally getting to the, we met the fixer and he was telling us about, you know, it's really dangerous. Are you sure you want to go in? There are many people that have gone in, they've not come back out. And for me, it was like, I said, well, there's a 50-50 chance of me surviving, then I'm going to go. It's always been my thought process. Wait, if there's a 50-50 chance of survival, then the odds are neither in or against me. Yeah, if it's 50-50, I'm going to survive. Okay. That's my belief. And um, you got to the border and there were a lot of people that were working in Libya from throughout Africa that were fleeing and trying to get out, but the Egyptian military and government weren't allowing them to get out. So they were actually living on the border between Libya and Egypt and UN tents. And it was awful. I think about that now and I just look at just the many people and the children that were just in limbo. It was no, really hell. They were in limbo and they couldn't escape Libya and they couldn't get to freedoms. They were just there. And so we got through there and then we met some Bedouins and then they uh, transferred us until I got into Benghazi, which was a stronghold of the revolution, the rebels. And I met the folks that I was talking to online and they introduced me to you know some of the heads of the different militias that were fighting on the front lines. And I met some of the, then the National Transitional Committee, which was the rebel government. And there, it was really tough because you had the only people there were Libyan, the Libyan people. There were uh, the Libyans who were former students 
had everyday jobs that found themselves now fighting. You know, they were giving guns and they were told to go to the front lines and fight. They had no experience at all. And then there were also those people, remember at that time, under the Gaddafi regime, there were a lot of spies and people were telling other people. And in that world, if people don't know anything about you, they'll make things up Mm. and they figure that the truth will come out or they'll make things up and hope that the truth never comes up. And so I had experienced some of that too, who was just foreigner coming here. I was there working with educational people, professors, and putting together talking points to get to the United Nations as well as U.S. Congress to convince them so that they should give support to the people there. And then there were many journalists there. And then, of course, you know, your mercenaries and intelligence folks and You know, as in any war zone, those are the people, you know, that you see. And so I was there, met many good friends, many good people. And I left about seven months after that to come back to the U.S. to spend about a month or two, get some support, and then to head back over. When I got back to the U.S., Gaddafi fell. They found him. They assassinated him. And now the rebels are now in control. So now I go back, but not to Benghazi, but to Tripoli, which was the capital of Libya. One thing to note, before, when they were fighting Gaddafi, everybody was united because it was one dictator that they were fighting against. Now that Gaddafi has died, everybody's angling for power. So instead of one dictator, there are hundreds of dictators. Each militia is fighting for control. It's truly the Wild West there. Now, I knew some folks in various militias, but then I was in Tripoli, which I didn't really know many people, but I had a couple people in. So I was working and meeting some of the government people. And then even then there, you had to be very, very careful in how you operated. So I was there for several months and getting along, working well. And a colleague of mine who had been trying to convince me that I should, he wanted me to meet some folks from American intelligence. I, I refused. And then finally he said, well, Oliver, can you just meet someone from the State Department? Actually, the, they have a company and they're contracting with the State Department to really put together information about how the people need assistance and what can be done for them. So that I agreed to, which I should enough, because shortly thereafter, I realized this person did not know how to engage within the country of Libya, who was very conservative, even I think more conservative than Saudi Arabia when it comes to Islam, but also that they were very suspicious of anything. And so this individual was trying to hire both men and women and doing various things and holding the meetings in my apartment where he was staying. I was hosting him until he could take and locate a place for him. And at the time I said, you know, you're doing something that's incorrect. You're going to get us killed or you're going to get us kidnapped. And so I said, I'm going to go ahead and find a place. I said, and you can keep this place. So I went out and my fixers found me a place. And I, one day I moved most of my things over. And then they asked me, they said, Oliver, do you want to go and get the rest of your things? And I said, well, I'm a little tired. We can do it in the morning. Let's go ahead and have some tea by the beach, some coffee, and we'll take care of it in the morning. The morning never came for me. My last words, because the morning never came for me. Because that night, 17 armed militiamen broke in with Kalashnikovs. My colleague was in there at the time. Two people, guys he was working with, were there at my flat. And they rounded us up and they took us over. And 
And then shortly thereafter, they found my colleague when he was coming home and they grabbed him up and they took him to this former Gaddafi prison. And so they sent me down to questioning me and they're like, what are you doing here? And, and I tell them, I said, listen, I've been here for over a year and I was in Benghazi and I actually supported your revolution and now you guys kidnapped me. And they put me in a cell and then they were this one guy they, they're trying to take my law school ring off my finger actually and he said give this to me and i refused and they pointed the kalashnikov at me and if there's three of them one of them had the kalashnikov he pointed it at me and they're like speak arabic we know you know arabic and i said i don't know arabic i know a little bit but i said i don't know arabic he goes no no you know arabic give me this or we shoot you so i looked at him and in english i said i came here to support your revolution but this is the thanks and the treatment that I get. I said, you can go ahead and shoot me. But I said, before you do, trust me. I said, there are three of you and I will kill two of you before the third one will kill me. And then they look and they freeze and the one with the Kalashnikov and his friend goes, McNoon, American McNoon, which means crazy American. So they leave and I get to keep my ring. Where did that gall come from? Well, first of all, when you're going and working and engaging in war zones, you must know how to protect yourself. I think that for me, it's funny that there's an always a natural thing about me. It's not something I think that you can teach. You could get taught, but there's some people that just act by instinct. And for me, remember, if I'm going to place and it's a 50-50 chance of survival. And by the time, it's true. Whenever I go to place, I'm looking around. I'm trying to size people up. I'm trying to look in the, especially these areas. If this happens, is there an escape route? If some people come and engage me, who is the one who is the most ferocious that I should go for first? And, you know, you size people up to figure out how you can minimize or get out of the situation. So that's just natural for me. Maybe it's something that the universe, maybe in another life, I guess. I know these things, but that's just something. Are you trained for combat? I would say that I've done some training. I've done some training, nothing formal, but I've done some training. Yeah. If I can hold my own. You have a formidable height and stature. Yeah. And that's this, this helps too. I mean, I did some training out in Colorado by some former special ops guys and things like that, but I never really engaged, you know, formally. Everything I do, I work on my own behest with my own company because my company is my kingdom. Right. You know? And this is my planet. This is my country, my company. So this is how I think of things. Right. I believe in the days of the old dynasties and renaissance and instead of kingdoms and lordships, you know, they're presidents of companies and their companies are their kingdoms. And so that's the way I romanticize it, at least with myself. I have to say I relate. I've been in very scary situations before, you know, growing up in third world countries. And I've been put in a state of like pure like panic. And for some mm-hmm. reason, something just comes over me where I'm just yes. like extra confident and cocky mm-hmm. and I'm like trembling inside. Right, right. It's amazing, huh? So I think that's something like what you just said there. I think it's something within you. It's something that you know, you don't remember it, but there's something within you from a past life where you have that experience. And as I said, you can draw when the time comes, you draw from that experience. You don't know how you know these things. You don't know how you're confident, how you know what to do, but it comes to you. And it's not from thought. It's from soul. It's from feeling. Wow. So were you, but were you pretty nervous or what was going on in no, your head? I'll tell you all throughout 
my three months there, I was not nervous at all. There were times when even like three days later, when we first got in there, oh, so when that happened to me, they left me alone. My colleague, though, who caused all the trouble, they were playing Russian roulette with him. They were just pretending that they were going to shoot his kneecap and he was afraid and frightened. And he told me this, they put in there, he says, this is what they did to me, Oliver. I said, why did you act like you were fearful? Of course, they're going to mess with you if you're fearful. You know, you need to be strong. You need to take it to them. I mean, if they kill you, they're going to kill you anyway. I mean, you're going to just sit there and cry. You can't do that, you know? And so, and I said, they're not going to kill you. But if they do, take somebody out, you know, just don't give it to them. And so that's my thought. But he never, they asked us afterwards whether we wanted to be in an isolated cell. He said, yes, of course. And I said, no, just put me in with the rest of the people. I'm not going to be in an isolated by myself and go crazy. I, I need somebody to talk to. So they put me in with people, people that, you know, supported Gaddafi and people that opposed Gaddafi. And there were about 12 of us in this cell room, which was good for me because their families would come and visit them and bring them food and different things. I didn't have anybody there. So they'd always share with me, oh, Oliver, come in. And even some of my captors, they would come and they would be like, oh, Oliver, we thought about you here. We brought this for you. And so that was during the time it was interesting. But they were accusing us of being spies and they were trying to understand. And the other gentleman, he was from Jewish lineage. And so they thought he was a spy from Israel. And I told him, I said, listen, if he's a spy from Israel, then Mossad has a lot to learn about recruiting its agents. I said, he's just a regular guy like me. But these things happened. And then there was a time when finally the embassy came and they notified us that they heard we were kidnapped and they had contacted the Defense Department and they were on high alert. But now that they know that the alert's been called off, is there anybody you want to contact or, or need help from Oliver? And they asked him and he said, yes. And he's telling everybody. And I told them, for me, I said, no, I just need to talk to my business partner. And then I said, and my brother, I said, that's all. He said, there's nobody you want to, uh, nobody in Congress. I said, no, no, nobody. Because for me, I don't want anybody. I didn't want anybody from Congress knowing what occurred to me because I didn't want my captors to know or to feel that I had these particular connections because then they would then, because of their mindset, then they would truly believe that I was a spy. Wow. And so I'm thinking about all these things. And then even like I told you, I was engaging with my spirit energy while I was in captivity and it would tell me things, you know, Oliver, there's somebody that's going to come here that's being actually planted by this militia. So be careful. Or they would say somebody I hadn't seen from the time that I was first put into that Gaddafi prison. One guy, I hadn't seen him in six weeks and I just thought about him and they said, you should expect a visit from this guy. And later that day, he comes and he goes, Oliver, I haven't talked to you in a while and I was thinking about you and there's this, you know, support the revolution shirt and I just got it for you here. And I said, this is wonderful. I said, I've been wanting to get this shirt and I never actually got it when I was there all the time that I was outside and during the revolution. And so those things happened. And then they told me, well, we're going to let you go. We thank you. We did saw, we heard, and we learned that, you know, you are really a supporter of the revolution and we're going to let you go. But then that never happened because Hillary Clinton, I guess, and members of the State Department told them not to release me until the other guy, Zephy, was released. Because I guess if I was released, he would never be released. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. So I was there for a good amount of time. But there were certain instances where I had to, like, profess or act anger at the U.S. embassy officials because they were really idiotic, truthfully. 
Were they aware? Yeah, while I was in captivity, just so that I could show this militia or these guys who were holding me that I was not part of the government. Right. And so everything that you're doing, you have to think and you have to strategically act and place yourself. It's like a chess game. And then I was able to do that with the help of my energies or my inner self or whatever was giving me information and helping me and talk and doing different things to just get me through. And so I was calm throughout the whole engagement the whole time period I was in captivity until the time when we left. Now, when we were getting out, I guess the White House, they paid off this militia with weapons and cash and whatever else that they paid them off with. And uh, we were allowed to leave. And so we were sent over to Tunisia. And then the other guy came on over to Tunisia, spent the night and then went straight home. For me, I didn't go anywhere. I stayed in Tunisia because I'm not going to let two years of my life go to waste because of the U.S. government. <laughs> and so I had folks that I work with, my team. So I had my team that was in Libya come to meet me in uh, Tunisia. And then I spent four or five months in the most beautiful place in Tunisia, this area of Sidi Boussaï, which is near the American ambassador's home, but it was by the sea. One thing common denominator you know about me, I always have to be near the sea by water because it soothes me. But when I got out about, and I spent my first night in the hotel, I slept for two days. And I was telling a friend actually when I woke up, I was straight, two days straight, so all the stress. And I was talking to a friend and I was telling him about my experiences. And then I just cried uncontrollably. You know, it's like all the emotion just released and just, and it was unbelievable that, and I didn't understand until afterwards, many, many, many years afterwards that me holding up and not feeling stress was actually my soul and my spirit and my body mechanisms giving me what I needed to survive this ordeal. But when I was able to get out of it, just the everything, just processing it all just broke me down. And for me, I had have to talk about it. And then if I have to cry, I cry it out and everything so I can just release it and not hold it inside, which will be very detrimental. Oh, yeah. That is so important. Wow. So that's... uh, Did anything happen? Did you have any sort of adverse experience happen when you were younger that might have given you some resiliency or wherewithal to make it through that as well? No, I grew up my home, my house life. You know, I had a good family, strong family. I always felt like I was the odd one or the oddball. Because of your connection with the spirit world? Yes, absolutely. So I always felt that I was not part of this family. I must belong. I think all of us felt that at one time or the other. I must have was born in some other family or some other because I felt different things growing up, you know, so that never, but even the older I got, even there within the prison and before that and even afterwards I sometimes when I meditate I close my eyes and I see different worlds and meditating for example I'll go and I'll see different worlds in different time eras and I'll focus in on one time era and it may be in the 1800s and the gentleman may be walking down a, say in the 1800s walking down a street and I'll follow him as he goes into a tavern I'll follow and look and then I'll just move back out of there and then I'll focus back in and then I'll see another time zone that I want to visit and I'll go there and I'll just interact with the people just watching and so I have that with me as well. Or sometimes I'll close my eyes and there's just a lot of eyes just looking back at me. So can you do that on call or? Oh, yeah, all the time whenever I close my eyes. Oh, amazing. You know, we grew up very spiritual too in, in the a religious group that I was raised in. And it was a common practice to take these spirit trips. 
Mm-hmm. You would close your eyes and as a group, you would go on. Right. Now, for me, when I ask for travel, it takes a little while for me and my body to get out. And sometimes for me to interact with actually beings that are out here, it's not on call. It just happens when it happens. You know, so if I'm meditating and my soul is going out and there's something that's trying to scare me. There was one instance, I'll tell you, I'm out of my body and getting through the first plane and I just feel, I smell the stench and I feel, I don't see it, but I feel this like hairy animal and I can see it even though I don't see it. And I hear it running at me, like, you know, the way a train motions. And I got so afraid and I'm like back in the body. And then I got back in and disappeared. And I was so pissed at myself because these elements are there to create fear and force you back into your body from elevating and exploring the different planes of existence. And I was so pissed at myself because I knew it, but I allowed it to happen. But then there are other instances where I interact and things come and it's just there and you go through and you learn the process and you learn what's occurring and about giving in and not fighting. For example, an element that may come and hold you and the more you fight, you can't move. When you try to talk, you can't speak. But when you give in, then it lets you go. Right. So all of these experiences you've had that I see. Yeah, exactly. So what happened with your kidney and ending up in the hospital? What was going on around that time? Yeah, I think when I was, I don't know if it was Syria or Iraq. I've been to so many different countries, (laughs) but I think maybe I had a large heart. So I was suffering. I had an enlarged heart. But when I was in these countries, I think breathing in various chemicals, I started, I began to suffer from congestive heart failure. And so I was taking medicine, but I was fine. When I lived in Egypt, I was diving, scuba diving. I was rock climbing, through my ayahuasca ceremonies. I'm riding my motorcycle through the desert. Everything is great. And I would go to the hospital maybe once every while. But then when I was in Egypt, I everything was perfect. I'd work out. I'm doing well. And I was coming back into the country in 2019 for New York Fashion Week. And I was feeling sick prior to me coming. And it's like I had these respiratory problems and I got to New York Fashion Week and I was just totally dead. And I couldn't really do anything. When I got here to DC, where I live, I went into the hospital two weeks later and I stayed in the hospital for two weeks and got out and everything seemed fine. But then February started and then I found myself, I'm not able to eat really. And I didn't know, I guess that was the kidney problems because I understood afterwards the heart medicine after a while, it has a toll on your kidneys. So when I went into the hospital, they admitted me and they said, oh, Mr. Kelman, we need to put you on kidney dialysis. I'm like, what What are you talking about? I'm like, I don't need kidney dialysis. And they're like, you need kidney dialysis. And so I said, well, let me think about this. So afterwards, I'm like, all right, well, let me do the dialysis. I know for me, they're like, you may have to stay on it for the rest of your life. And for me, I'm just like, I meditate. I'm like, I'm not going to stay on this thing for the rest of my life. I'll just do it. And then I'll get out of this situation. This is my thought process. But when I finally said, okay, I'll do it. Then the doctor says to me, well, it's a little bit more than that. Your heart is failing. And if you don't have a heart transplant in two weeks, within two to three weeks, you're going to die, Mr. Kelman. And I have to tell you, it doesn't look good because people are on the registry for years for a heart and there's no paperwork even done for you. So you should prepare and you know make your preparations, you know, to die. And I looked at her, I said, I'm not going to die. And she says, Mr. Kelman, I said, I'm not going to die. She said, I've got too much to do. It's not my time yet. I'm not going to die. 
And I think she, I don't know, she's like, she got offended. And for me, it was like, how do you tell somebody cavalierly, you're going to die? I'm like, what, what about hospital bed manner? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? So about several days go by. and Was a part of you a little rocked? I was rocked, yeah. I was rocked, but I was like, I'm not going to die. Right. It was just like a knowing. Yeah, I just knew. Did it remind you of any time, like of the time in Libya at all? I mean, was could you relate it to any other experience that you had? I think many of the experiences I had prepared me for this. So, for example, when I was in Libya and when I was in another different countries, I was literally by myself, even though I met people and I'm, I easily meet people and we become friends. But then at the end of the day, they have their own families. And they go home. In Libya, for example, you know, people would go home and I'm in my hospital room by myself. And the only familiarity that I had in Libya at the time during the height of the revolution was at 12 o'clock midnight, 12 to 12.15, there was a big explosion by people that were just, you know, part of the Gaddafi regime that was just bombing different areas throughout the safe zone of the rebels. And so that was my comfort. If I did not hear a bomb go off between 12 to 12.15, something was not right. And so I could never sleep. And so you create familiarities because you're alone. And actually, yeah, when I was young growing up, as I said, I always felt alone too. So I felt that people didn't really understand me. So I would actually explore myself through my music or through poems. You know, I wrote, po- wrote the poem when I was 15 about me in a glass bubble in the middle of everyone and everything, but still alone, you know? And so I think I've always had that feeling. And so when I'm in the hospital now, as you know, during COVID, you can't get any visitors. So there I'm alone, but I'm not alone because I'm used to it. I'm used to being in war zones. I was in a Gaddafi prison. And so wherever I am, as I said, that becomes where I am. And whoever I'm around then becomes my family or my community, whether it be in a prison, whether it be in a country that I'm visiting for a month or two or three or four months, whether I'm living in another place or whether, you know, whatever I'm doing, that is where I am, you know? And so I guess that's probably, as I said, maybe it's something that I've been through in the past life or it's something that I've been taught through this, but that prepared me for all of those things, prepared me for this, as well as not having people intimidate you. So the doctors, I felt trying to intimidate me and telling me, you know, that one time the doctor said, Mr. Kelman, I thought you were a logical person. And then, as I tell you, when I'm going to an area, I'm focusing, I'm aware of everybody and what they're thinking and what they're going to try to do to me. So at one time, then she goes, Mr. Kelman, it's not logical that you're thinking you're going to survive. Is there psychiatric problems in your family? So now I'm thinking to myself, okay, you can't get emotional over this, Oliver. She wants you to be emotional or she wants you to say something so they can say that you're psychologically unaware to make a decision based upon your health. And so this is how I'm thinking. So this is how you need to respond. And so this is what I do and everything. And then finally, I met somebody, a doctor who was, it's so funny how things go because we realized afterwards that he knew some people that I knew politically as well as uh, he was a heart doctor visiting from George Washington University. And he took an interest in me and said, we need to get you to Johns Hopkins. And so I worked with him as well as contacts that I had to get me over to John Hopkins. So I think it was just me getting over there was 
just the universe really extending a helping hand. Because when I was in the hospital there, I felt I was trapped in this dungeon. And I started experiencing feeling and having dreams of, you know, the past and, you know, just evilness that occurred in this particular hospital. It was at Howard University Hospital that I was in. And I just had this feeling and then things would speak to me. And I would always hear wherever I would go, like this reoccurring music chant. And I would turn to people. I'm like, do you hear that music? I'm in the elevator. Like, no, Mr. Chalman, where is that music following me? And I started to meditate. And that's when I started to sort of start speaking at sunrise to the energy, the sun, as it rose and believed I was speaking to my ancestors before me. And they would talk back. And that got me through it until I got to Johns And even through Johns Hopkins, which was night and day. And when I got there, the Johns Hopkins, after a couple of days, they put me in an induced coma and on the machine to keep me alive for about a month. And then they woke me up and they told me, Mr. Kelman, we were bringing you out of this state because if you stayed in there any longer, that you would not survive. But we were bringing you out of the state. And actually three days after we decided to take you out on the state, we had two, we put you on the registry and we have two donors for you from two different people for your heart and your kidney. And they said, you were going to do the surgery in two days. And I was happy. And I told my friends and I was no, no fearfulness. I'm like, all right, let's, let's get it over with, you know, and I told my friends, hey, I'm going to do this operation shortly. I'll talk to you tonight. Well, I didn't realize, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, after the operation, I'll be cool. Well, I woke up about eight days later and it was amazing. Wait, so um, you got a heart and a kidney transplant? Yeah, on July 16th. Good grief. Uh, it was something. And they're like, you're a miracle man, Oliver, just that you were able to get this done and you went through all of this. And I tell you something that's really interesting. Four to six weeks I was in this coma experiences that I had. Now, I've always heard about people in limbo or near-death experiences. Now, I was in a machine. I wasn't dying, but I wasn't really... The machine was keeping me alive. But I had so many experiences. I met people that had passed, long died. I met people that were still alive that I had not talked to in years. I met interesting people. At one time, I was in the ground underneath the universe and I was in a car in a city like Gotham City and there was all these lights and everybody around me it was like half human half cartoon like people and we were just driving like in a circle like it was just I'm like what the hell and when I were taking me out of the coma I was walking on the beach somewhere I imagine was the Middle East somewhere and I'm just like the waves the ocean is to the side I said that's why it always soothes me the ocean is to the side and all of a sudden I'm yanked up into the sky and I find myself crawling through the soil and I stick my head out of the soil and I'm like, oh, I can breathe. And I'm in my hospital room and I hear them. They're like, wake up, Mr. Coleman, wake up. And so just... I mean, I thinking about it, I just become awestruck because just the experiences that I had and everything, most of what I went through in that dream state, I remember. Not everything, I remember. And even before I got into there, I was going in and out of consciousness. And when I would come back into reality, it's as though the dream state or the unconsciousness would follow me into the real world. So there was no line anymore of whether you're in dream state or whether in your reality, it was all merged together. And I could totally understand why people end up in psychiatric wards. And I always believe it's not because there's anything wrong with them. It's because there's no division between the worlds. Right. All the worlds run together. 
together. Their critical faculty is gone pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I always believed that growing up, but last year was the first time I experienced it myself. What was the feeling like coming back? Were you relieved to be back? Were you? Yeah, I was actually relieved to be back because in that world, I was just going through, I was just so many things. And I was thinking I was going through different worlds and different people and different energies and weird energies and energies that were scary, but not so scary because I'm just, I'm like, what the hell? Like when I was in that city and I'm just in this car and we're just going back and forth. I'm like thinking, I'm like, is this all we're going to do? Riding around in the car in this busy, dark city, you know, with just lights and everything, (laughs) human cartoon people. I'm like, what the hell? You know? So it's just all the experiences, but I was relieved to be back. And you know something, I think with me, it's always the case. I told you that I had experiences where I had dreams. And like when my mom died, I would have dreams that she comes to me. I think it's my engagement into these other worlds. Or I had dreams, even from a young age, of people that have died, they've come to me and I interact with them. My mom taught me all the time when she was alive. She said, you know, when these people come to you, you must talk to them because they have something to tell you. And so I had an experience once that I realized that I'm truly not from this world, but an old soul visiting. So I was in this place. And all of a sudden, it's as though the world is ending. And I find myself running somewhere, but I don't know where I'm running to, but I know where I'm going. And I get into this warehouse area and I see all people, Ashton Kusher, running into the warehouse. I'm like, why do you think of Ashton Kusher? Why is he in your head? You know? And so, and the guy at the gate says to me, he refers to me, he calls me and says, we're expecting you. And we're going and there's these like rockets. And then I look and he says, this way, if you Mr. Kelman, or whatever he called me. And he said, it's time for you to leave. And I said, no, I have to get my family first. So I was going to go look for my brother. I said, I'll be right back. And he says, okay, hurry up. And I run and I'm searching everywhere for my brother and his family. I finally find them on the bridge. And I go to him and I say, Carl, I said, we've got to go. We've got to leave this world. I said, it's going to end. And he wasn't going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. So I'm like, all right, I got to get out of here. And I run and I'm trying to find this warehouse and I can't find it again. And then all of a sudden I see all these ships like leaving and I'm left here. Now, that dream I had five years ago. Last month, I had a dream that made me understand this dream because then I was talking to somebody about it. And in this dream, it was the same thing where I'm here and the world again, something's happening or it's, and um, I'm looking to leave. And I'm actually in this area, this gym. I was going through an airport, actually. No, I was going through the airport and I'm in this gym-like area and we're going through the airport to go through customs and immigration. But you're walking through different areas and rooms and levels of the building. And in the gym area, I realized, I looked down and I realized, hey, I'm not wearing any pants. And so I'm like, let me go in my bag. I took off my shoes, I put on the pants and I start walking in this long line and going through winding areas and everything. And then I get to an area and there's the line, the customs office here is here. There's a line that's going to the left. There's an area that nobody's going Go to the line where the people are on and the customs office says, no, you're going this way. And there it's an open area and I could see trees and light outside. But in this other area, it's a a path and then there's another turn and it goes deeper into the building. But then I go and I look down at my feet and I realize, hey, I forgot my shoes in the gym area. So I say, again, I'll be right back. I've got to get my shoes. So I run back 
finally in. And there's a guy that's with a big cart and there are all sorts of things. And I said, hey, let me look in there. And I find my shoes. I put it in and I go get on the line and then we run and then we're going there. And I go and I see that now it's dark outside and the gate to get outside is closed. And so I get on this line. He says, you have to go this way. And I said, no, I'm supposed to go. He says, no, it's closed. You have to go with the rest. And so I'm following that line and I see a little kid that I imagine I know because he belongs to a friend of mine and he's by himself and crying. So I take him with me and we're getting online and we're walking further. And I look around the corner and I notice that the people around the corner, everybody that's on this line is getting shackled with chains and they're taking them deeper in the building. So I grab the kid and I run out and we're trying to find an escape route. And these people, they find us and they're like, you have to go back, get on the line. And I'm going on the line, but while I'm on the line, I'm thinking, how do I get out of here? I'm with the kid. How do I get out of here? Where do I go? And then I wake up. And I was telling somebody this about that interpret streams. And they said, do you know the commonality that you're facing, Oliver? You have an ability to go ahead and leave, to be free. But something brings you back here. So at first, it was my brother. And then the second thing was, of all things, a shoes, a pair of shoes. I could have been free, but I allowed shoes to keep me back here. Somebody or some material good to keep me here. And so I think that at times we choose to come back for a reason or not. But other times those reasons keep us from elevating ourselves, from experiencing, from exploring, from from really moving on, you know, up the different planes of existence. And so that was my final interpretation of understanding what this dream was, which has recurred throughout my life. But those are two of the same dreams that I remember that has the same message. Wow. Oh, interesting. Um, What do you think is something that is keeping you here or maybe holding you back from Mm. elevation? I think that it's something that I need to do. I don't know what it is yet. There's something that brought me here in the first place that I have not done. I think that all of us and the older that we feel our spirits are, our energies, we come back for a particular reason, whether it's to learn something that allows us to then go ahead and flourish or it's something that we need to do a purpose. I don't know what that is yet. I think that the universe will reveal it. I think that perhaps, you know, engaging and exploring and accessing the key of the Akashic records. I don't know if you're familiar with the Akashic records, which are the records of the universe. I think we'll understand what our self is and everything and what we're meant to do. But at this time, I don't know. All I know is I'm supposed to be here and I'm fighting to stay here in order to do this because I don't want to come back here by default to just re-engage and restart the understanding again. Because the more times you come here, the more you forget your purpose and your beginning. Are you actively looking for that purpose? Are you actively wanting to find it? Or are you at peace knowing that it'll I'm at peace. I think when you actively seek something out, you never find it. Mm -hmm. It's like floating in a body of water and allowing the current to take you where you're going. And so that's what I'm trying to do. It will reveal itself of its own accord. If I'm fighting and swimming against the current, then it's, you know, I'm never going to get anywhere. I'm just going to be still. Yeah, it's that moment when you surrender and open yourself. Yeah. And give up the need to control the outcome or, yeah, that's definitely something I've also learned as well. Right, right. There's nothing like finding yourself aligning with your purpose. And that was something that happened for me last year when I received the Uh activation project and it just came and it was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. 
It's been challenging. And I think once you really align with what you're supposed to be doing, the universe mm-hmm. throws in a bunch of obstacles and monkey wrenches yes. to see how committed you are mm-hmm. to your purpose. Mm-hmm. But something you said, oh, about climbing Mount Sinai, uh-huh. doing that trip in one of, in the, I did five grams of penis envy mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, I received the message that I had to get off of social media, that the activation project needed to be separated from social media. Uh-huh so that we could be more present and focused on people. But I also kept seeing this like mountain with a light at the top. So my plan is to open up an activation project center. But Uh you know, like when you're doing these like journeys, you're kind of going all the way back in time and then to the future. But part of it was seeing, you know, Moses climbing up the mountain Uh to come back with the Ten Commandments. And all throughout time, many people have like climbed the mountains to find the wisdom, the scrolls, you know, and it's like metaphorical, but also literal where you have to climb something challenging to get, you know, the download of the wisdom. And so I was like, is it that I'm supposed to, you know, create the center somewhere where it's challenging for people to get to? And part of that was like getting off of social media where it's like, if people really want the healing, the answer, the growth, the expansion, then they have to work for it and show that they're committed to finding it. Because right now there's just such a prevalence of just information getting thrown out there and it's just so easy and everyone's looking for the shortcuts and the easy way out, the quick pill that's going to make you lose weight, you know, and, and we've lost a lot of our resiliency that way and our perseverance. And so that was just this really common theme was like there being this house at the top of the mountain that people have to climb to, to get to, to get the healing and the, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for. So it's been kind of exciting figuring out what that's about. Yeah. That's amazing, huh? It's very, very amazing. Yeah. I would love to build or create, and that's one dream of mine in that area that I told you, it's this area actually a little bit farther from Mount Sinai, but uh, Nueva, which is more in a deserted area, but it's just beautiful and you just feel the energy and the peace of the place. So my dream is when I go back over over the summer, just get some land on the Red Sea and build a community, you know, for people, spiritual center, you know, that you could not only meditate and have your yoga exercises, or but also a school of information, but also relaxation and, and sort of, and then you, you can do these different ceremonies, so to say. And so that's a dream that I have. Of that's a phase three of the activation project, you know, which is the activate the world part where we're teaching people how to build these intentional communities. And the activation project center is going to be sort of the flagship where, you know, we'll have an intentional community where people are maybe building little like sustainable homes on a big piece of land. So we all live very close to each other. We have a school for the kids where we decide the curriculum. Everything is curated to information that's really going to help them learn and grow spiritually and a school Mm -hmm. where people can come and learn these like ancient wisdom. Oh, that is my dream. 100%. Yeah. Well, maybe this is something that we could 
discuss and I get out there and I start looking because I'm looking for people that are like-minded that we could sort of commune together and sort of engage and I think when you have a good community of like-minded people then you know that's a process that makes it more successfully potential than if you were to do it alone well and that's the great thing about the way the universe works is all these people that I've met or that come together are just these key players in this formation of a new heaven and a new earth that we can create Absolutely. And they show up so unexpectedly. And like, it's weird. Yes. And that's why it's so important, I think, out of everything to keep your channel clear, right? And keep yourself open to these people and events and experiences coming together to teach you, right? Take the Mm -hmm. curriculum. And obviously, you know, I think the spirit world found a very open channel with you because you're like, okay, (laughs) he's able to to hear us and receive these messages. Mm -hmm. I'm going to conduit of communication, which is incredibly important. So I was wondering out of all of these different trades that you have and experiences, what are you the most passionate about right now? What are you working on? What's challenging you? The most passionate. Again, you know, just like there's no real favorite place of mine. There's no real, I love everything I do. But if I were to say what my real love is, it's anything that has to do with artistic creativity. I mean, I love music. I'll sit down and I'll just close my eyes and I'll just create a piece based upon my emotions or I'll look at and if I'm involved in fashion too, co-producing, you know, a company that co-produces fashion as well as doing music, entertainment and engagement and shows and things like that. And so anything that artistic, I love collecting art. I love just, it's that sense, like um, that creative sense. Now I love business and too, I love strategizing, but for me to relax, for me to be aware, it's creativity and the artistics of history, traveling, of knowing, understanding, of leading people and engaging in anything spiritual that has any essence of spirituality. That leaves me at peace. But I guess realistically, to answer your question, my real passion is discovery. And that's what ties everything that I've said. It's about discovering something, engaging in something new. And I think that's what the human soul is all about. It's about discovery and actually the essence of energy soul in and of itself. Because like I said, source energy engages with all of us because it wants to discover new things and new experiences. Oh, yeah. That's so true. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with a mom who struggled with mental health. And I remember her, you know, having experiences, like spiritual experiences. And I think in the Western medicine that we live in now, mm-hmm. they're so quick to label you as something and give you medicine or give you, right. medicate you. Have you had an experience where you reached out for help and somebody tried to medicate you or direct you towards a psychiatrist? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that Western thought, Western medicine, Western, anything Western, I think, you know, gears towards sort of a patriarchy understanding or path. And that's dealing with, I'm going to go ahead and take this, which will go ahead and affect this. However, Western medicine or Western thought does not go to the core process of why a problem occurs in the first place. I think Eastern mythology does that more so. And so, yeah, you know, when I was dealing with my heart issues that caused me to have kidney failure, which then resulted in heart failure, I think, as I said, it was based upon all the medicine I was taking. There are a number of ways, things that we can do to sort of improve our health. You know, we are 
what we eat, they say. And it's very true. Food is our medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, anything that we do, people have been known to cure themselves of cancer, of diabetes, of a number of ailments based upon changing their diet, exercising as well as their mood, you know. And I think that process is more so, I think, within Eastern mythology than Western. Think about what you were saying too about how like people who end up, you know, like in the psychiatric wards Mm -hmm. basically are just aware of everything that's going on and unable to differentiate right between like this physical plane and like Mm -hmm. other spiritual planes and then usually the medication that they're given cuts them off to that and then just keeps them on this and so it reminds me also of what Steiner Mm -hmm. wrote about right in the 1920s about how very soon they were going to be pushing vaccines on people which was going to end up cutting them off to the spiritual Mm -hmm. world and to the curiosity for exploring the spiritual Mm -hmm. world which Mm -hmm. is very evident I think now more than ever you see this very clear polarization mm-hmm. between, and this is going to be very controversial, I'm sure, but like the group of people who are going down this like plant medicine sort of route where mm-hmm. it's opening them up to source energy right. and consciousness and the other people who are going straight down the vaccine hole. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's definitely, I think there's just definitely something to it, you know, but they've been doing this for years, for decades. For example, the fluoride in the water, which is supposed to dull your senses and, and, and really kill your pineal gland so that you don't really understand and you can't really engage within different universes or energies or the locking down, as you said, the vaccine, changing your whole, in vaccines, it's all about messing with your genes, your genealogy, your DNA, and shutting down your chakras. If you're not able to see your access through your pineal eye, your pineal gland, if you're shutting down your chakras, then you're killing your soul energy, you know? Yes, Yes, wait, so the fluoride is supposed to be good or bad? Bad, bad, bad. Oh. So the fluoride that's in the tap water? That's in the tap water. Because remember, in their system, there's fluoride in tap water, there's fluoride in your very toothpaste. You know, fluoride in a number of things. That's why it's important to actually look and see the ingredients of what you're taking into your body. Because a number of those things, over time, they affect you. And you're not able to, you know, when you talk about, you know, there's so many kids that are out there right now that they say they have attention deficit disorder or different things like that. Well, I don't really think that attention deficit order is truly a bad thing, you know, but they want to give you something to affect attention deficit order so that it keeps you monotone, engaged, imprison your mind. Like I said, you know, there are many things that they want to do to imprison you, whether it be through religion um, itself, a body of religion, whether it be the food that you're eating, whether it be the medication that you're taking. It's more so with the medication that you're taking. Yeah. And it also just depends on in the culture that you grew up with. That So your culture was able to foster your gift, which is incredible. And it was the same with me, you know, growing up in a very spiritually oriented environment where everybody had sort of this direct sort of communication with the spirit world. It's very common for us to like sit and pray and get like downloads, what we call them prophecies. So I was, I've always been open to that. And because of that, I've had very incredible, phenomenal like experiences in my life where I received a message to go some to a place and talk to somebody. And then it turned out that this person needed to hear this message. And that's happened 
a lot. And then I moved to the States and you get so like sucked into the matrix Mm -hmm. in so many different ways that it's just completely like, it's like static electricity that's blocking Mm -hmm. your channel to connecting with everything. Like social media is a big component of that. TV, media, news, all of this noise, right? That's keeping Mm -hmm. you from really being able to connect. So yeah, I mean, I just recommend for anybody listening to take a break every now and then do a digital detox for a week if you can, you know, as much as you can, even information break like books, podcasts, you know, just quiet your mind as much as you can, because there's so much amazing information and messages out there. You can receive the purpose, you know, for your life Mm -hmm. or figure out why you're really here, you know, and there's nothing more exhilarating than that. So true. Very true. Mm -hmm. And I think whenever you try too hard to find that purpose, you push it away more. Yeah, that's I believe that too. I think that's one of the things that I've been struggling with is I'm so eager because I know that I want to do something great, but I need to back off a little bit. Yeah, I think we all have that problem. Yeah, and I've learned that too. Sometimes I just have to to stop myself, physically stop myself and say, Oliver, stop. Just say Oliver, the light. The life, the life, life, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Oliver. This has been Absolutely. a real incredible pleasure. Such an amazing story. I cannot wait to do a part two so we can hear all the other little details. What do you have coming up? What sort of projects? So June, July will be a year since my heart and kidney transplant. So the doctors will allow me to travel overseas. Oh, okay. So that's what you're waiting yeah. for. Right. So I'm waiting to, for that to happen. And then as soon as that happens, I'm out of here. But, you know, we've got some business things going on that we're trying to close some deals. I told you, I think at the beginning, when we were talking before the podcast, that I'm learning other things to go ahead and do as well. You know, options trading, that sort of thing. However, what I've been doing really is looking at exploring what I'm going to be doing artistically as the world begins to open up again. And so I have some meetings with various people regarding that. And as I said, heading over to also the Egypt to sort of look into this community that I want to go ahead and establish and create. So those are all things that I'm doing. But more so, I've been really focusing on embracing the elements of energy around me, meditating more. I'm doing right now a detox for going into my second week of a detox. And so so I can sort of clear myself, clear my energies and everything. Nice. Yeah, that's amazing. It reminds me of something Naval Ravikant said with like the emergence of virtual reality and AI that if you cannot tap into your creative, then you'll be obsolete because Mm -hmm. everything else Mm -hmm. is going to be taken over. It's important more than ever to tap into your creative and everybody has creativity in them. We were born that way, you know, Mm -hmm. just figure out what's getting in the way, what's blocking you. Yes. But uh, please, yes, let us know how we can support you and continue to push you along this amazing journey that you're on because we need people like you. So we're Thank here you. for you. You want to do a, you know, one of our journeys with the uh-huh. activation project, just let us uh-huh. know. Yeah, I'm open to it. I'm open to it. Yeah. And, you know, I think we have a lot of symmetry between us. So, um, yeah, I'd like to follow up and uh, engage and see 
what we can do together. Oh, yes. I love that. Okay. Hopefully, I'll be in Washington, D.C. soon. Or if you're in Austin, yes, let us know. Okay. Absolutely. Such a pleasure. I mean, seriously, amazing story. Just an amazing human being. So grateful for having the opportunity to be here for both of you. It's been great. If you want to reach out to us, we uh-huh. are at become.activated at gmail.com. So we would love to hear from you and we will talk to you next week.